Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, May 23rd, 2022, and while our family's still bonding with our new baby boy, I'm excited to bring you part eight of my Solving Guns project. This is a multi-part series we're sharing first with our Polylog listeners, a project I've spent years on. The goal is to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing laws. Not because laws are a bad idea or a good idea, but because laws are not solving this issue right now. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those on the left and the right behind one goal, to save lives. Something we can all agree on. You can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. You can also find access to the 2,000-plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. This is Part 8. This is the third part of our discussion on reducing mass shootings without the need for gun control legislation. Last week, we looked at some of the data behind mass shootings. We defined what mass shooting means, that we were going to look at active shooter incidents. We looked at the FBI database of 15 years of active shooting incidents. And we also began to dive into some of the reasons behind these shootings, trying to understand the stress and other factors that lead somebody to become a mass shooter. We began by looking at schools as a common location where shootings take place. Today, we are going to continue that journey. So let's begin. We're going to start Again, as we said, where many active shootings start with the forces that act on an individual to make them frustrated. And today we're going to look at workplace shootings. So, workplace shootings account for the largest share of all active shooter incidents, nearly one in four events. Their prevalence is pretty steady in the data set that we have from the FBI. The fascinating thing about the data here is that there are two types of workplace shootings those that are perpetrated by employees, and those that are perpetrated by the spouses or ex-boyfriends of employees. This second type is sort of an extension of domestic violence, where a man is enraged by a woman who left or in some other way, in his mind, betrayed him. The solutions that we talked about then to reduce gun violence around mass familicide and domestic violence can be applied to this second type of workplace shooting. Almost all the shootings of the first type, the ones by employees, take place at factories, manufacturing plants, or other blue-collar workplaces. And 60% of those killed by those incidents were killed because the shooter was fired or suspended. Now, why is this? People get fired all the time from all sorts of industries. Why do these specific people in these specific industries lash out with a gun when fired or suspended? There are millions of Americans employed in manufacturing and other blue-collar workplaces, working hard, dedicated to their craft, providing for themselves and their loved ones. Only the smallest fraction of a fraction of workers ever become violent at work. But these industries make up a large percentage of all workplace shootings. So, it makes sense to ask why. If we find out what makes some of these factory jobs different, maybe we can change it 
and by changing it, reduce the chance of violence. These workers tend to be in their jobs for a longer time. Manufacturing workers have the longest tenure in their jobs, averaging at 5.3 years, compared to the average for private sector work in general, which is 3.7 years. That's 50% longer. Longer time in a job might be significant, because it means a few things. First, workers feel more invested in it. They've put lots of years into this company, into its mission, so they expect to be treated with respect for that level of commitment. Second, these workers feel connected to the place. They've given some of themselves to the job, and the job's given some of itself to them. Their identities have become connected. When someone begins a sentence, I am a, we usually expect to hear a profession after those words. So if they've invested all of this time and they identify themselves in some way with this position, then to have that position taken away, there's two things happening potentially in their view. All of this worker's labor for years is being dishonored, and they're literally having a part of themselves ripped away. The American Psychological Association has ranked the causes of American stress and found that money, work, and the economy have been much higher on the list as sources of stress than things like relationships, family, health, and personal safety for years. And why is that so surprising? When work can feel like something that is so out of control and yet so necessary to have any sense of control over your life. An act of firing is something like a death, or is it? The company going bankrupt, that might be a death, but being picked out of the lineup and told you're fired and everyone else get back to work, that's not a death so much as a murder. Steven Pinker, in his massive book on violence, points out one of the bigger misconceptions about violent crime. Most of it isn't committed by people who trample on the idea of justice. No, to the contrary, most people who commit crime are motivated by a supreme sense of justice. A firing, like a murder, is an injustice in this sense, one that demands immediate and swift justice. So that's one thing about these jobs, how long they tend to be. But there's another thing about factory workers that's different from other workers. Their jobs are often physical, physical labor, whether it's in a plastics factory, an assembly plant, a distribution center, a lumberyard, mill, warehouse, or construction site. When physical labor is associated with a job, then job performance could very well be correlated with physical traits, like strength, size, fitness, and endurance. The stronger worker could be the better worker. When these traditionally masculine traits are celebrated in the workplace, it reinforces behaviors that have historically gone along with them, like dominance, aggression, retaliation, and a code of honor. When men are in an environment that reinforces a code of honor, they act differently. In one study, men who had a verbal disagreement were twice as likely to escalate that disagreement to physical violence if other people were in the room to see it. These men feel like they have to defend that honor rather than letting the argument go. So tell me, how do you just let the injustice of a firing go? This sense of injustice is amplified by the roots that these men have put down in their communities. The longer the job, the more likely the worker is to have established deep connections to the local area. Being fired could mean moving away from friends, family, and the home you've come to know. The data tells us that nearly half of the workers in this demographic have never moved in their lives, not even once. On average, those who haven't moved have eight family members within an hour's drive from their home. That's a lot of people to say goodbye to if you're looking for new work. So being fired isn't just a threat to one's livelihood, 
but it could mean losing everyone and everything these men have known on a daily basis since birth. That's a massive threat. In fact, family is the number one reason why people choose to stay put in an area, according to Pew. The number one reason why they leave? To find work. I don't know if I can overstate the power of place. When the researchers at Pew Research asked people why they chose to stay in their town, six out of ten said, because I belong here. This is at the very heart of an individual's identity. A firing is a threat on every possible level. Which brings us to money. Losing a job always means losing money, but for this group of workers, it's way more than that. If these workers have a family, there's about a 40 to 50% chance that their salary is the only salary in the household. Lots of these jobs we're talking about take a considerable amount of skill and know-how, but most of them don't require a college degree. And the statistics tell us that men without college degrees tend to be married to women without college degrees. The average age of factory shooters is 43.6 years old. That's prime time for having a family. And if they have a family, it's far more likely for theirs to be the only salary in the household. That's because studies show that the less education a mother has, the less likely she is to work. For example, about 80% of mothers with college degrees work, while just 50% with less than a high school diploma are in the workforce. This means that the loss of a job for a man at a factory is more likely than average to mean the loss of all family income. It also means that these households are less likely to have large amounts of money saved. The average household income for families with a stay-at-home mom and a working dad is $55,000 a year. For families with both parents working, it's $102,000. To make matters even harder on these families, they're more likely to have more children. Moms who lack a high school diploma have, on average, about three children, while moms with a college degree, on average, have about two children. So, even if factory workers make more money than some other industries, their household is more likely to make less money. The family is less likely to have a second income to fall back on, they're less likely to have savings, and more likely to have bigger families with more mouths to feed. And they're likely to have more roots in a place, making it that much harder to leave town to look for work. Oh, and the men who just got fired? They are more likely to be working in a place that respects a male code of honor, where disrespect demands retribution. You might say, okay, that makes a firing a bad thing, a terrible fall, but there's supposed to be a safety net to catch families in that fall. Well, yeah, there's unemployment insurance. The first problem, the cosmetic problem, is a real one. Nobody wants to be on unemployment, and to be on it can be a major blow to anyone's pride. But pride aside, it might be argued unemployment insurance is that safety net. Problem is, there's a gaping hole in this net. The widespread belief that you don't qualify for unemployment if you've been fired. The idea that you only get unemployment if you've been laid off. This belief is true, actually, that in many states, if you are fired for misconduct, you cannot receive unemployment. Now, if you're fired for other reasons, sometimes you can receive unemployment. But the fact that this is unclear, and the fact that many people think every firing is disqualifying, has a really dangerous effect. At the moment of firing, there's a black feeling of falling, with no safety net to catch you and those you love. By the way, the policy of disqualifying people who are fired for misconduct from receiving unemployment is indefensible. It's mean-spirited and ultimately counterproductive. 
people who are fired for misconduct are exactly the individuals that society should try to make less desperate, not more desperate. I mean, what the hell are we thinking? Tell me then, is it easy to hear that you've been fired, put your jacket on, and just walk out the door? Is it easy to head home and tell your family that depends on you that the paychecks will stop? When we put all the pieces together, the surprising thing isn't that workplace shootings happen so much, but that they don't happen more often. So what can we do to stop that sense of falling? The answers are all right here in front of us. First, let's see if we can reduce the financial stress on these families in general. One way to do that is to encourage more two-income households. That could double a family's financial well-being, because with two incomes, a family is more likely to have enough money to save a little on the side, whether it's savings for a vacation, a child's college fund, or a home or vehicle purchase, it doesn't matter. Money in savings is money that can be used in the off chance of a firing or other misfortune. We could do this by empowering and encouraging more women to go to college, since women with college degrees are more likely to work when they have children. College enrollment among women is already higher than men, but there's definitely progress that can be made in this area, particularly for younger women who have children before they have a chance to go to college. Colleges everywhere should make it easier for first-time moms to access education. This is more possible than ever thanks to online courses. We just have to bridge the divide to make colleges work harder at serving these potential students and to change the narrative around college for young women who get pregnant in or right after high school. We need to make it clear that college coursework doesn't have to mean commuting and juggling schedules. It could simply mean watching videos on an iPad, chatting over Zoom, and reading and writing at the dining room table. This isn't to say that it's easy to juggle school and take care of a child, but it is possible and we can make it easier and more within reach. The reach part is actually already quite a reality. 32%, just about one in three women in undergraduate schooling today, are raising children at the same time. And most of those women are single parents, 60% in fact. This isn't easy, but they do it anyway. This isn't easy nearly any way you look at it. The majority of student parents don't have a single penny to contribute to college expenses, And among single parents with children, practically all of them, 88%, have incomes at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. And their time for study is continually interrupted by family obligations, with more than half of single parents spending more than 30 hours a week on caring for their children. A full-time job? That doesn't pay. All of this adds up to the sad reality that the majority, 67%, don't graduate within six years of enrollment. So... These schools do open their doors for parents, but more often than not, those doors don't lead anywhere at all. Well, anywhere but debt. Forget about getting more moms to enroll in college. What the hell does that matter if that schooling isn't designed to help them graduate? This is a huge problem. Consider this. If four-year colleges served students with children as well as they served the larger student population, a 64% graduation rate rather than a 33% one, we'd see two and a half million more single parents graduate over the next 10 years. That's 1.8 million more women with college degrees than we have today. Since women with college degrees are more likely to work than women with just a high school diploma, we'd see 264,000 more women working than otherwise wouldn't be. A quarter million more households of the 4.6 million households with children where only the father worked would suddenly have two incomes. Think of that. A quarter million more households would have 
chew income suddenly. That's hugely significant. And all we have to do is get colleges to serve students who are already enrolled with children as well as they serve the rest of their students. But why should we stop there? In fact, helping women who never graduated high school to get their diploma can have an equally powerful effect. Because women with a high school diploma are about 15% more likely to work. There are about 1.6 million moms without a high school diploma. About half of them don't work. If we could help those moms to get their high school diploma or GED equivalent, we would expect to see 264,000 more moms working than we have today. Together, these two measures, helping more moms get their GED and helping more parents who are already enrolled in college actually graduate from college, those two measures would reduce the number of households in the U.S. where men are the only breadwinner by 11%. That's significant, but it still doesn't feel like enough, does it? Shouldn't educating every mom with a high school diploma and helping moms in college increase their graduation rate by 60%, shouldn't that make a bigger difference? Yes, but it doesn't. There's only so much that education can do here. And that's because there's a significant number of women who, regardless of their education, choose not to work. Sure, there are reasons of choice here, yes, but economics play a huge part. Lots of moms don't work because it simply seems useless when childcare is so expensive. This is a huge problem. The average cost to have two children in childcare is nearly $18,000 a year. That's like buying a brand new car and paying for it out of pocket on every birthday. Daycare is so expensive that tons of families make the calculation that two parents working just isn't worth it. Unless you're making significantly more than it would cost to put your kids in childcare, what's the point? There are good points, of course, like staying in the workforce to advance a career, building a rich life outside of the home, pursuing a passion, or serving the community in some special capacity. But for lots of families, the value of the job market isn't enough to outweigh the perceived costs of childcare. There are a few ways to tackle this, and the first is to dispel this myth in the first place. Let's get this straight. Childcare is not affordable. The cost to enroll two kids in childcare costs more than rent in all 50 states right now. And in the majority of states, it's more than tuition and fees at an in-state university. But even though childcare is ridiculously expensive, it's still a better financial decision to keep both parents in the workforce than to have one drop out of it. In fact, according to a detailed accounting by the Center for American Progress, each year a parent chooses not to work can cost a family more than three times that parent's annual salary. How is that even possible? Because parents who stop working also stop their career advancement, so they tend to earn less when they go back to get a job. This also means that they're not accumulating Social Security benefits or retirement savings during their break. So, for example, let's say a young woman chooses to leave the workforce for five years. Before she left, she was making the median salary for a full-time 26-year-old, $30,000 a year. That five years out of the workforce, you might think, would cost her 30000 times five years, right? Or $150,000. But by pausing her career and stopping all benefits from accumulating, the actual cost to her and her family, when you add it all up, is $467,000. Most families, of course, don't add it all up. They just have this terrible sense that they're working like crazy and all their salary is pouring into childcare. But the U.S. Department of Labor did add it up. And they found that expensive childcare and poor work family policies cost the United States $500 billion a year. 
and it keeps 5 million women out of the workforce. We can make a difference in the lives of these families, reduce their financial distress, and by so doing, reduce the chance of a stressed man opening fire by improving work-family policies, and by helping families understand that it isn't worth it to have a parent drop out of the workforce. The Center for American Progress has already developed a calculator that does just that, but we can do more to spread the word. We can reach out directly to these families. But how do we truly reach them? Well, we're not the only ones trying to reach these families. There's actually an entire industry pouring money into marketing to them. We just have to enlist its help. Piggyback on this industry's messaging, and maybe even partner up with them. Here's the industry in a nutshell. The industry for baby goods and services like cribs, toys, and formula is estimated at $23 billion a year. Every single business in that industry wants to make more money off of young families. And one of the best ways for them to do so is to double the income of those families. More income, more spending on goods and services. We need only ask these companies to imagine their customer base flooded with more disposable income. Why don't we try to convince every one of these companies to communicate the real cost to a family of a parent leaving the workforce? Through advertising dollars, events, promotions, and packaging design, these companies can help their customers weigh the options. And the companies could even get involved in making it easier for parents to locate affordable childcare. At the corporate level, we should push these companies to band together to advocate for better paid family leave at their offices and in other industries. Because if parents are able to take time off to care for a newborn, getting paid all the while and with a guaranteed job when they return, parents are far more likely to stay in the workforce. Which I'm actually doing right now. So that's one option to reduce the financial stress that leads to gun violence at work. Focusing on the financial stress of a job. But what about the emotional stress of work in general? A stressful and hostile workplace can lead to violence directly. But it can also fuel violence when triggered by a firing or suspension. Too many workplaces still suffer from the manager problem. The manager problem is simple. Managers can come from one of two places. They can be promoted from within the organization, or they can come from outside the job they're managing. In both instances, this can be the reason for bad management. First, those who are promoted from within might not get the training they need to manage people. For example, if you're a great welder advancing through your career, you might eventually be promoted to manage other welders. That's great. You know a lot about welding. But that doesn't mean you know how to manage people, how to help them get their job done better, how to remove barriers and serve their professional needs. Those from outside might have the opposite problem. If you're some hotshot manager from an MBA program and are brought in to manage a division of welders, you might know everything there is to know about minding the finances, but you probably don't have the slightest clue what it takes to actually do the job of welding. And what's worse, your boss probably doesn't require you to learn. You just have to meet the next profit target. The answer, of course, is better training for managers. Some of them need just some basic tips for the messiness of managing actual people, while others need to gain the trust and respect of those they're managing by getting a basic understanding of the work they're doing. The management problem afflicts pretty much every industry, because every industry wants to promote people but doesn't want to go through the trouble of training them to manage. And every industry wants to get professional management thinking at some level, but considers that separate and divided from the work of actual workers. This sets everyone up for failure. Most managers don't know the first thing about managing, and they can very quickly find their goals in conflict with those they manage. 
they make small mistakes that leave a big impression in the minds of their workers. A recent report in Harvard Business Review talks about how managers and direct supervisors keep denying their workers freedom to choose their own hours and make their own schedule, even denying work from home. And yet mountains of research show that flexibility in the where and when of work actually improves productivity. Bottom line, bad management leads to hostility in the workplace. Pretty much every time. And hostility can build and build and build and build until one spark sets it off. So what's a great way to reduce the incidence of workplace shootings in factories? Stop that hostility from building up by improving basic management practices at these companies. Better management means a happier workforce. And happier workplaces don't tend to erupt into violence. They're at least less likely to erupt in violence than a hostile workplace. There's another thing companies can do to cut down on the causes of mass shootings. Make golden parachutes standard for everyone. What's a golden parachute? It's a boatload of money that companies pay to executives for failing at their jobs. Usually it's used to get out of a contract early, or as an incentive for CEOs to go quietly into the night without making a fuss. Now, when it comes to CEOs, these things really are boat-sized blocks of money. When North Fork Bank was sold to Capital One, the CEO of North Fork was suddenly without a job. So, he received a package worth $214 million. These rich company leaders don't have quite as dangerous of a fall if they get let go. Not nearly the fall that the average family can experience on a firing. And yet, the concept of golden parachutes has only been reserved for these high-flying executives. What if we made parachutes available to everyone? What if, when you're let go from your company, you get $5,000 to $10,000, no questions asked? Wouldn't it put your mind at ease? Wouldn't it make you feel like, okay, I know how I'm going to pay rent this month. Okay, I have some time to find a new job, even if that's in another place. Something like this could really reduce the pain of a firing, and even the offensiveness of it, the sense that it's an injustice. Just as courts award civil remuneration to the injured parties in a lawsuit, this money might serve as some sort of retribution for that sense of being wronged. Paying for this is not as crazy as it sounds. First of all, severance pay is already a standard practice across many industries. Even when employees don't sign and negotiate their contracts before employment, severance pay is worth it for the employer because it's a way to get departing employees to sign a release of claims so they don't sue in the future. It's just good, prudent legal practice to mitigate the risk of litigation. And many companies provide sign-on bonuses in this exact same $5,000 to $10,000 range. New engineers, new nurses, new skilled laborers, $5,000 sign-on bonuses are industry standard for hard-to-fill positions. And the annual cost of health insurance is far more than this. So it's certainly doable. And it would have a broad impact on the business, benefiting the workforce in all sorts of ways. Obviously, it would help all workers, not just those prone to violence. Fewer families would fall through the cracks. More families might feel empowered to move to find more work, rather than feeling stuck in a region suffering decline. It could also reduce reliance on unemployment insurance. And there would be effects on business as well. Companies would have to think carefully about the next round of layoffs. Maybe rather than firing a difficult employee, companies might think about ways to work with them to improve disagreements, resolve disputes, mediate conflict, or provide more job training to keep employees at work. Yes, in a world where every firing costs a company $10,000, it might make more sense to retrain an existing worker to do a new job rather than fire them and hire someone else to do it. 
corporations could get far more serious about providing real job training and fostering professional advancement. It would be cheaper, then, to hire from within than to outsource jobs. Of course, hirings would become more selective, too. Companies would look for employees with broader skills rather than specialties in a single area, because in a changing economy, you need a workforce that can change with it. This could bode well for workers who haven't spent years and years in schooling for one particular skill. Of course, it all sounds great, but how are we going to get companies to do it? A few ways. First, it attracts talent. It's another job benefit, one that looks bigger on its face than it will ultimately cost the company. What do I mean by this? Well, consider that if I tell you that you don't have to worry about getting fired, because if you do, you'll get $10,000, well, that certainly makes you feel like your salary just went up $10,000, right? That's a $10,000 bonus. Pretty cool, yeah? And it would help assure you to take the job if you were worried that the job came with the risk of being laid off. And it would tip the scales, wouldn't it, if you were considering another job that didn't have this benefit? That's great. But the great thing for the company in this situation is that it doesn't cost them $10,000 a year. If you work two years, that doesn't mean you get $20,000 if you're fired. It's still the same 10. It also doesn't cost them for every employee, because most employees aren't fired or laid off. They retire, quit, or leave for some other reason. In these instances, the company doesn't have to pay. So that $10,000 benefit could just be on paper, something that cost the company absolutely nothing at all, but still attracted workers to the job and made them feel good about it. Maybe even good about taking this job over one that paid a little bit more. In the end, this hidden value for the company might pay for itself. We could also make a human rights and fairness case here. You gotta be fair to your workers, and offering golden parachutes to rich executives and not to the bulk of employees is just plain wrong. Every time a company provides a golden parachute to a failed leader, we can make a fuss about it. We could get unions involved, since on the whole, a program like this would not only serve to protect those who are fired, it could protect the vast majority of employees from being fired. A mechanism like this sounds right up their alley. Companies might also benefit in another way, by offering this type of golden parachute as an option that workers could choose amongst other benefit packages. For those worried about being fired or let go, they could choose this rather than a bonus or some other form of compensation or benefit. By making it an option and subtracting benefits for those who choose it, companies could save money. Because again, remember that most employees who choose it will never be fired or suspended. In this way, companies can reduce their overall benefits expenses while providing more flexibility to their employees and putting more minds at ease. Finally, there's the positive perception of a program like this. Companies can come out looking progressive and caring by unveiling parachutes for all employees. It won't cost them much, but they could get a big bang of good press coverage for implementing it. At a time when the whole country is skeptical of big business, here's a way to counter that narrative and come out looking better than your competitors. This kind of program isn't unprecedented. The newspaper industry has used it since the 70s. They just have a different name for it buyouts. Here's how it works. A newspaper finds itself in a situation where it needs to cut expenses. What's the biggest expense? The people. Historically, companies have chosen to lay off workers, but there are problems with this. It scares the hell out of the workforce, for one. It isn't voluntary, and it targets the newest workers, who are often the youngest and most diverse, the freshest faced. Buyouts are different. The company offers between six months and two years of an employee's salary for them to leave. Usually, employees with more seniority find it more appealing and choose to take it more often. 
In this way, buyouts are an informal way to usher in a new generation and to do so without as much disruption. In the early 1990s, the LA Times accepted 668 buyouts in one go. It was huge. Some called it disruptive. But the company capped buyouts by department and granted them by seniority. One reporter at the Baltimore Sun, which granted nearly 300 buyouts around the same time, talked about the sense of possibility that swept through the newsroom. Quote, Suddenly all bets were off, all options were available, and people who I thought would never consider it did consider it. End quote. Some reporters at the time took a year off to write a novel. One design editor invested in a coffee shop that stayed open something like 20 years. Others went on trips or changed industries. Buyouts, of course, aren't golden parachutes, but they're kind of similar. It's money given to someone who is leaving. And if it can work for one industry, why can't it work for another? Now, there are problems with universal golden parachutes. The biggest one is the moral hazard. We don't want to encourage people to try to provoke their own firing. The parachutes introduce some interesting dynamics into the employer-employee relationship. A lot of what-ifs need to be ironed out and made crystal clear. For example, businesses could abuse the system too. Promising benefits at the start of employment and then finding clever ways around paying up. Like suspending people indefinitely without pay rather than outright firing them. That would suck. Or putting in some conditions and laying those conditions like traps for all employees to fall into. Or maybe more likely than this is the business that rather than fire an employee and pay up, chooses to make their work life a living hell in the hopes of them quitting on their own. But some common sense rules and codes of conduct could, I think, mitigate the worst abuses. And just imagine what a difference it could make. Literally 60% of all deaths associated with factory mass shootings were precipitated by a firing. Half of those killed were killed by an employee who had been fired on that day. The other half, the employees, came back weeks or months later for revenge. If you've got $10,000 in your pocket, I don't think you're taking a gun from your other pocket. And if you've got what you need to help transition to something new, then months later you'll be doing that something new and not thinking about the slights of your old workplace. It could make a real difference, particularly in this first area we're looking at, reducing stress. But let's talk about that a minute, the stress part. We've talked about relieving the weight of that stress, but what about improving the strength of the person in distress? What about empowering more people to deal with even the worst of circumstances? What about health and strength, not of the body, but of the spirit? I'm talking about mental health. We have a mental health crisis in this country. 18% of adults report having a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder. And yet, and yet, answer me this. Think back to the last time you saw a doctor, whether for a checkup or an x-ray or a more serious procedure, to get your tonsils out even. Think back. When was that? A month ago, a few months, maybe a year or two? Okay, now think back to the last time you saw someone who specialized in mental health. 44 million Americans get physicals every year, but regular mental health screenings are practically unheard of. Even among those suffering from mental illness, less than half actually received any kind of treatment. Why? There's a million answers why, from stigma against mental health to a lack of providers. But at the heart of it, I think, it's just inconvenience. Primary care doctors rarely broach the subject of mental health. The services seem far away and the benefits even vaguer. And yet, mental health services can rescue lives, whether it's battling addiction or overcoming anxiety or simply managing stress. Everyone needs a mental health checkup, just as much as they need a physical one. So why don't we combine these two? 
rather than having to seek out a different provider, make another appointment and on some other day go to another office, why couldn't your regular doctor give you mental health services? And if you needed more, why couldn't a mental health professional practice right there in that same doctor's office? This could help people struggling with depression, anxiety, addiction. It could reduce the chance of violence. It could even help other health conditions where mental health plays a role. I think it could happen, too, because it's been proven to save huge amounts of money. An analysis by the Milliman actuarial firm estimated that combining mental and physical health could reduce U.S. health care costs by as much as $48 billion a year. The federal government has already granted a billion dollars to promote behavioral health, and Medicare has recently gotten on board. But still, there's a long way to go for mental health to become a regular part of every medical visit. By accelerating this trend, we could ease the tensions that lead to gun violence. Just look at the example of South Central, a health center in Anchorage that serves Alaska Natives. By integrating mental and physical health services under one roof, they've seen extraordinary results. Between 2000 and 2015, hospital admissions and emergency room visits dropped by a third. Patient satisfaction was at 97%, and some credit it with literally saving them from suicide. How do we do that then? How do we accelerate this? A few things. We can improve adoption and usage of new billing codes for doctors. We can lobby the American Medical Association to get on board in a big way. We can lobby mental health provider associations to get on board. We can work with mental health providers directly, work with physicians' offices directly, work with large primary care providers directly. We can consider setting up a new association that is focused strictly on combining these two domains. We can work with medical schools to build this into the curriculum. We can find out what resources doctors use to set up the business side of their practices and work with those who provide these resources. And we can work with practice managers and practice manager groups. All right, so we've tried to stop the stress that can lead to a shooting. But what if we fail at that effort? What if, imagine that, someone is stressed? So stressed they feel the need to do something about it. Why do they choose violence? Yes, why do they want to become a mass shooter? Where do they even get that idea? That will be the discussion next week. Until then, if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at bstyle. You can tweet at Naomi at sotonaomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. And of course, you can find more information on the Solving Guns project at solvingguns.org. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you again next week. Bye.